And uh, speaking of some camp ministries, today we have a guest speaker. I use that kind of loosely. Um, Scott Larson, I've asked him to bring the message here today. Um, it's good every now and then to have another voice come in that preaches uh, from the same voice, the scriptures, and uh, be able to break that down for us. And uh, gives an opportunity for me also to not necessarily carry that burden and be able to focus on other things. It did turn out this week that we did have a funeral. And uh, please be in prayer for the Lakata family as they continue to process and uh, grieve there. Please pray for them as they walk through that. And um, Scott, would you be willing to come and join me up here? And we're going to pray, and then I'm going to hand it right over to Scott and uh, as he leads us in the Word. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your Word and the things that you have uh, pressed upon Scott's heart to share. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just use him to speak those things clearly. And, Lord, that all of us, we would have a heart posture that's ready to receive from the word and from this man that spent time praying through this and discerning what it is that you wanted to say. And so, Lord, we thank you. Please bless this time. Bless the children as they're learning as well. We just thank you, Lord. Use it to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. It's good to um, be here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by talking about camp just for a second because, well... I have the microphone. Um, so people always are asking me, what, you know, what, uh, uh, how was camp? You know, how, how are things going there? How was your year? Um, whatever. And probably the thing that uh, number one is on people's mind is spiritual transformation. You know, how are our kids responding to the gospel? Um, this last summer, um, and this was part of our um, uh, end of uh, summer and our year-end mailing, but the spiritual impact there, um, 71 uh, kids prayed to receive Christ. Now, we don't track every single uh, person that's at camp, but of those that we do, we're um, um, asking very specific questions and kind of guiding them through. So we, we talk about what it, what, if, can they articulate the primary elements of the gospel, you know, that I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, Jesus died on the cross for the, and I need to receive that, you know, that if they understand those, those kind of things, and then they talk about, yeah, this week I I did that. That was the first time I did that. So, um, so we uh, 71, which is a phenomenal number. 92% um, of our kids would be able to articulate uh, some spiritual growth measure. They'd be able to say, you know, um, I really understand better about my the importance of my daily Bible reading or those kind of things. Um, one of the statistics that we've never tracked before is um, friendship. We know that a lot of kids come to camp because of the relational aspect of it, and we kind of assume that there's kids connecting. So this year we actually asked that question on our end of the week survey of, you know, did you make a new friend? 99% of the kids said, I made a new friend this week, which I think is like phenomenal. It was way higher than I even had hoped for. Um, so uh, attendance, normally for us in the camps that Twin Lakes programs, we have six, seven hundred campers this last summer in 2021. We were over a thousand um, in our program camps. Next year we've actually expanded. We've started taking back some weeks that used to be guest groups um, because the guest groups were dwindling and our, our numbers are growing and so we've taken back uh, a, a week. Um, and then uh, next summer we're adding another camp with grandparents. So we're gonna be doing two camp with grandparents and two family camps, just expanding the opportunities. Um, Finances, obviously, when you have more campers, you have a little bit more revenue. Uh, camp is very much a um, 
we hope to break even every year. It's a bad business, uh, honestly. I suppose like farming, right? You just, it's not a great business. Um, so we, we really only make money 10 weeks a year. Um, and the other 42 weeks, we just kind of claw to try to keep it, keep it open. But um, uh, this, this year was, was good. We actually did make up for some of the loss in 2020 and, and, uh, and still ended the year in the black. So, and then on top of just our revenue, uh, we, built, we built a 725-foot zip line, remodeled our, our mini golf, and f completed a 14,000-square-foot building with our dining and, and offices and new chapel space and storm shelter, uh, $2.7 million. And as of a couple days ago, we were, get this, $7,000 shy of $2.7 million. And for us, that was like, I just can't even believe we're that close to actually paying for it. Yeah. All right, so, oh, there's the picture. This is, um, the, the next one is a picture of my baby. There she is. <laughs> Isn't she cute? Yeah, I love her. Love her to death. Um, Wintertainment, which is coming up here in a week, that was our opening a year ago, was the first time we did an event in uh, that space was for Wintertainment last year. And, I mean, I'm not a crier, but I almost had tears welling up in my eyes as kids are pouring into that new space and they're worshiping. And of course, they were wearing masks last year, uh, but uh, but still, it was uh, an incredible um, time. So, okay, um, let me pray, and we're going to get into um, our our passage in First Samuel. Um, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name. So, I want to start with this. Um, do you believe the things in this book are true? So, if they are, and I appreciate the response, because that's, that's great. I, I much rather teach. That's why I brought a stool. Um, so, uh, I want participation. Um, if you believe that, that, that what it says in here, then, then what happens is we're living our life here on earth in these mortal bodies. We have, you know... Uh, marriage and funerals and all those kind of things. And, and then at some point, we'll die or be raptured, and we will meet Jesus face to face, and we will become like him, right? It says in um, 1 John chapter 3, Dear friends, we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but what we know is that when Christ appears, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. I want to personalize that a little bit. All who have this hope in him purify yourself. You know, I have this outlandish idea that um, it sounds a tiny bit arrogant, so just give me some grace. Um, I have this outlandish idea that I'm going I'm to live my life in such a way where I'm, I'm not going to be sinless here on this earth. I don't... Right, but I will sin less as I grow closer and closer to him, and that my, my life will, will be more pure as I mature in Christ, so that when I see him, when I meet him face to face, and I become like him, it won't be such a big change. Right? Now, it sounds a little bit arrogant, but I think that's what, that's what is said here. It's like, all who have this hope in him Purify yourself. Be striving after. We have tons of scripture that talk about running that race with perseverance and, and, and you know, disciplining yourself and all those kind of things. I want to end my life 
very close to how I will spend my life on this earth, very close to how I will begin my life in eternity. I think that's a good goal. Let's turn our attention to um, 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Um, Russ, I'm very thankful for two things. One, the, the Bible reading where we have voices from our family of God reading scripture to us. I love it. I, I, don't, I didn't sign up for the text thing. Um, I just grab that email, and then I'll go through and I'll listen to each one of those people, and I love hearing the voices of people that I know reading this verse to me. And, and it's like, that was really it's really fun. I don't know. It just adds a lot to it. So I'm very thankful for that. I'm also thankful that you gave me this particular passage because this is like the sweetest and easiest passage to teach from out of the entire Kings series, I think. I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, preparing. When we look at uh, this First Samuel passage, we have a very familiar character named David, right? And it's almost too familiar, maybe, for us. Um, so we're going we're gonna to pull this up, but I'm, I'm going to look at Acts chapter 13. You can look it up if you want to. Oh, actually, I think it's on the screen. Acts 13, 22. Um, the writer of Acts, Luke, says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I, this is God speaking, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I mean, doesn't that sound like it ties in with that first, that, that passage out of 1 John? It's like, this man after God's own heart, it's like, on earth, he's not perfect. But, but I mean, he's, he's got the, some of the right stuff, right? He's representing me well. That's a badge I want to wear, right? The, the man after God's own heart. Now, last week, uh, we, we heard about King Saul, and Russ preached about King Saul. He was the, he was the people's choice. Tall, dark, and handsome. Um, I'm, I'm going to do a little responsive. Some of you old Lutherans will remember this responsive reading kind of practice. Okay, so when I'll say something, and then when I pause, you'll say, sometimes. Okay, so I'll say something, and then I'll pause, and you say, He was a Jew. He did acknowledge God. He obeyed God. He waited on God. He was foolish. No, it's a trick. He was actually foolish quite often. So, so Saul is king of Israel, the people's choice. And when we hear about Saul and when we read this, uh, these chapters, um, we see Saul being pretty foolish uh, quite often. In fact, in this, this last week of readings, um, he didn't wait for Samuel, and he went ahead and offered sacrifices as if he was the priest who was assigned to do that job. Um, in fact, uh, Samuel came to Saul afterwards, and he was like, in, in chapter 13, verse 13, you have acted foolishly. Uh, he made a really dumb order that the soldiers were not allowed to eat anything after a battle that Jonathan had won. He stubbornly concluded that his own son Jonathan should die because Jonathan didn't know about his dad's foolish order, and he ate some honey in chapter 15, God gave Israel victory over the Amalekites, and God said to Saul, everyone should die, everything destroyed. But Saul didn't kill the king, and he didn't tell the Israelites to, to, to destroy everything. They, they kept the best stuff. They only destroyed the not very good stuff. You know, we have this example of Saul obeying God. You know, God doesn't... Um, 
God doesn't like partial obedience. There seems to be a, a, a partial obedience equals disobedience. Yeah, very good. I didn't even have to set you up for that one. You know, there was a, this is an interesting side note, and it kind of, it caught, kind of caught me off guard. Saul, uh, in, um, in chapter uh, 16, verse 14, it says, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and he was tormented. And in his, I don't know, emotional uh, state, he wanted somebody to come and play the harp for him. So they found this kid, who was a good harp player, um, happened to be David, and David would come in and play his harp, and it would calm Saul down, right? So then David is mentioned as King Saul's armor bearer. So he's, he's kind of in the, you know, he's in the chamber. You know, he's there uh, alongside of Saul. It's interesting, though, that um, when David goes to battle against Goliath here in a few pages, King Saul says, um, who is that kid? Um, I, I can just hear in David's mind, you know, when actually, when, when David brings the head of Goliath, he says, um, what's your name? And, and Saul asks uh, Abner, who is the commander of his army, he's like, who is that kid? I don't know who that kid is. Um, I don't know who he is. Ask him, what's his name? Well, so they ask him his name. I'm David, son of Jesse, the guy that's been playing the harp for you and carrying your armor, and you told me that you loved me. Right? Saul was distracted. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. Saul was a, a roller coaster of emotions. And, and really the priority for Saul was himself, his kingship, his crown. This was what was important to Saul. Now that is not a man after God's own heart. It's a man after man's own heart. But that's not what we're going after. And, and so we have the opportunity now to look at um, David. So Saul was God's chosen, or Saul was people's chosen king, uh, but God had a plan all along. And his plan involved the tribe of Judah, the youngest son of Jesse, a little boy named David. And God knew that he was going to be a man after his own heart. Now, this is the badge that I wanted to wear, um, and I want to finish my life in such a way that I, I am following Christ so closely that my heart, the things that I care about are, are the things that he cares about. The things that he cares about, I care about. Things that he hates, I hate. Things he loves, I love, right? I want that heart. I want to wear that badge. That's the badge that David is wearing when he's described as a man after God's own heart. He's an ordinary boy, probably picked on by his older brothers. We know he got kind of shoved into the shepherd's role, which was the worst job <laughs> of all. Um, you know, they, they probably all went through that phase as brothers, and finally it's like, okay, David, it's your turn, and he's the youngest. Uh, we know that he learned some things as a shepherd boy. He learned how to protect his sheep. He knew how to lead and guide his sheep. He knew um, how to play a harp and calm his sheep. Um, there, there's several characteristics that, that kind of show up. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And when you read through the Psalms, you get a glimpse of what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. He was humble um, in Psalm 62. Low-born men are but a breath, but the high-born are but a lie. Right? His reverence. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. I am saved from my enemies. 
He's respectful. Be merciful to me, O Lord. I'm in distress. He's trusting. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's loving. I love you, O Lord. You are my strength. He's devoted. You have filled my heart with greater joy. He's faithful. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He's obedient. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and I will obey it with all my heart. And probably the most important characteristic in, in, in this list is he's repentant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. David wasn't um, perfect. Um, I, you know, when we think about his, this, this badge of I am trusting and I'm obeying, the, um, the, there, there, were, there were times in David's life where the badge fell off where maybe he picked up the crown and looked over the kingdom and made some foolish decisions, whether it be to go to war or to take Bathsheba. But we know throughout the, this, the whole story and scope that David kept picking back up this badge and then going back to, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it's great. This uh, section of, of uh, 1 Samuel ends with a battle uh, of, uh, in the valley of Elah uh, between the Philistine army and the Israel army. And we see this kind of setting up um, and we, as we think about the giants that maybe we face um, in our lives, there's a, there's a giant that David is about to face. And it, and it really, when we look at this story, it kind of reveals to us a little bit about what it means to be a man that is living a life uh, with God's heart, with that, with that badge. Now, the Philistines were a constant threat to the Israelites. They are, um, from, from the very beginning of entering into the Promised Land, we see, that, uh, we see this Philistine army and their uh, Dagon and other pagan gods as an enemy of Israel. It's just over and over and over. In fact, just a couple pages ago, Jonathan defeats the Philistines in a battle. But, but it's just a battle. The, the war is not over. The Philistines just like, come back and keep coming. They're just waves, um, just this, this thorn to the uh, Jewish nation. Um, eventually, the Assyrian army uh, destroys uh, everybody, uh, except for what the Babylonians took captive. But those are stories for, for other days. This one um, is set up and in, uh, there's a picture of a, the, the hillside or whatever. So there's, there's what's called a, a Shephelah, which is a valley that leads from the Mediterranean Sea up into Jerusalem and higher ground. And there's these hillsides, and I found this picture. It says, well, this is where the Philistines were, and this is where the Israelites are. I think and the next picture is a little bit clearer picture. But um, you, you just imagine you get a, a little hill, and they're not mountains. You know, these aren't mountains. These are just rolling hills, right, with big, wide valleys. So you'd have the Philistines, which are coming to attack the Israelites, and the Israelites come on the other side of, of the, the Shephelah, and, and they're, they're basically, uh, it's stagnant, stagnated. They, they can't advance on each other, because in order to advance on, uh, on the other one, you'd have to go down the hillside, across the valley, and then come back up. Totally vulnerable and exposed. I mean, it would just be, that would be like foolish warfare. So they just sit there, and they sit there, and we know in this passage, they sit there for at least 40 days where the Philistines are taunting 
the Israelites, and the Israelites are like, whoa, I mean, I'm, there's no sense in us going down and getting slaughtered, and the Philistines are thinking the same thing, only probably a little bit more taunting. And so they come up with this strategy known as single combat, a way for them to avoid mass casualty in warfare. You send your best guy, we'll send our best guy, and then that determines the outcome of this battle. Right? Again, not the war, because uh, it's just going to keep happening over and over. But this battle will be determined by this mono a mono uh, battle. So everybody is thinking that uh, uh, the, the warrior for the Philistines, um, Goliath from Gath, and we'll talk about him in a little bit, is going to be the representative from the Philistine army, and the Israel army is like, uh, we don't have a guy uh, to compete there. Like that's, we're, out, we're outmanned um, a little bit. So, but, but let me back up. I, I know you're familiar with this story, and I know you think you know how it's all going to end, but I just want to challenge you uh, on, some, on some things. I don't think David is the underdog in the story. And for the sake of this message, when we are facing a challenge in our life that seems like it's a Goliath-sized challenge, I, I, don't, I don't think you're the underdog. I don't think I'm the underdog. And let's, let's dig a little bit in there. There's three types of warriors that are, that are fighting in these, in these battles at this time. There's the cavalry. There's the ones that are riding on horseback, probably swinging some kind of a weapon. Um, and if they fall off their horse, then they enter into that second uh, range of infantry. They're man-to-man, uh, you know, wrestle and fight and punch and swing an axe. Now, you want your... your, your uh, the rider on horse, and the infantry guys to be pretty well armored, right? Because they're going to be in hand-to-hand -hand combat, close combat. But there's a third group of people that are fighting in these battles, um, and they would be the, the artillery. Now, today we would talk about guns and missiles and, I don't know, cannons or whatever, but, um, but the artillery at this time would be archers and slingers. Now, we're more familiar probably with bow and arrow and, and, and how accurate you know, somebody who is skilled with a bow and arrow, how accurate they can shoot that arrow. You know, we know Robin Hood stories, right? You shoot an arrow, hit the center of the bullseye, and you shoot the next arrow, and it splits that first arrow. It's so, you know, you're so precise. Well, people actually can do that. And in, in, in Bible times, um, well, in many, many uh, uh, centuries of, of fighting, there were slingers that could throw a stone 200 yards at 80 miles an hour. And in uh, Judges, it talks about, in Judges chapter 20, it talks about some of these slingers. So, I mean, we even have biblical context for this, not just uh, battle his history. Um, in in uh, Judges chapter 20, it says there's 700 left-handed slingers that could aim at a hair and not miss. I don't know why they have to be left-handed. I'm not sure exactly. But, you know, this... this specifics, you know, the details matter. Now, the stone that David probably picked up, it, you know, it could be as big as a golf ball-ish. You know, it could be a pretty decent-sized uh, stone. Now, uh, Jason, you probably have a pitcher who could throw this rock. How fast? 60, 70, maybe 80 miles an hour, right? Even in high school, 
right? And if you get into the big leagues, I mean, they could throw this rock over 100 miles an hour. Would that do damage at whatever it hit? Right? Sometimes we, we think about uh, how lucky it was that a little rock knocked out Goliath. Well, a stone this size thrown at 80 miles an hour with the precision. David killed a lion and a bear. Now, when, as a shepherd, now, I'm just thinking, probably a lion and bear weren't typical predators for shepherds at that time. Otherwise, there wouldn't be very many shepherds. Or very many sheep, right? So, so maybe this is a, a... David had experiences that were a little more wow um, than many of the shepherds of his time as a way for God to prepare him for a bigger battle later on. Because David walks into this battle with pretty good confidence of, I can throw this thing hard enough to hit a bear in the head and knock him out. David likely could swing a, a sling six to seven revolutions per second, knock a pop can off a fence post at 200 yards. Clearly there were different fighting styles, two different distinct fighting styles, and two different distinct expectations of how this battle was going to be fought. The, the uh, Philistine army and Goliath, and uh, they thought they're sending their big guy to do hand-to-hand combat with the best guy coming from, from Israel. And Israel and King Saul were thinking the same thing. We've got to have somebody who can fight man, hand-to-hand combat. We know that because um, Saul tries to put all this armor on David, and David is like, I can't fight like this. It's too heavy. It's too clumsy. I will, you know. David never had intentions of getting close to Goliath. His expectation of what this battle would look like would be like the lion and the bear. You don't fight a lion or a bear in hand-to-hand combat. You fight them from a safe distance. Now, Goliath, the Philistine warrior, um, you know, I, I, I had a picture of um, uh, Andre the Giant. Who remembers Andre the Giant, right? He's a, a, what, a professional wrestler uh, and, a, and a movie star in my favorite movie, uh, the, the Princess Bride. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, this is him with a 60-minute, I don't remember the name of the reporter, but he did a 60 minutes uh, uh, sh- show. And, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a giant, right? He's seven foot four, like 570 pounds. He's a big human. Uh, I was thinking, is Tim Butcher in the room? So, um, Tim, so um, Tim, stand up. So I remember uh, Manson football playing down at Lake City, and, and the guy that does, um, the, the guy that owns a car lot down there, and he does all the talking, right? So he became the biggest Tim Butcher fan at that game. Do you remember that? Was that your senior year? So he kept talking about, man, I can't believe they keep running the ball towards Tim Butcher. They did it, you know, he's going to stop up everything, and he's going to put pressure on everything. They got to run away from Tim Butcher. He kept talking about how we got an opponent here who's got some size advantage over our guys. We need to get around it. Thanks, Tim. So anyway, um, 700-pound squat, UNI record. Five, how, what's your bench? 470 pounds? Something ridiculous like that. I don't even know. It's... Yeah, it's almost mine <laughs> in my heyday. 
Um, there, there's, uh, but there's some, there's some issues here with Goliath that maybe uh, will help us understand that sometimes we, we give too much credit to our enemy, I think. So here's Goliath, gigantic human being, probably nine feet tall and proportioned size. Just a, his legs, are maybe, well, Andre the Giant's legs are 36 inches in diameter, di not diameter, circumference, right? 36 inches. You know, that's bigger than my waist. Each leg. Huge person. Now, those types of growth in the human body are likely uh, uh, caused by a medical condition. In fact, many historians, when they're looking at, at people of these uh, unusual size, would... Um, would probably say that their medical condition, a giantism, it's, what's the name of it? Um, acromegaly. Any nurse in the room? Um, acromegaly. So it's a, it's a tumor on the pituitary gland that causes unusual um, hormone release and, and, and growth. And if it's, I, I know that, it, you know, today in modern medicine, the doctors would prescribe things to, like, slow that down, like, control those hormones. But, but in this time period, obviously, it would just be like, well, he's just going to be giant. They would have a much shorter life. And one of the side effects of, of that uh, unusual growth, not only is Goliath probably um, slow and kind of cumbersome, um, but he probably also had poor eyesight. One of the common side effects is n extreme nearsightedness and double vision because of the pressure in the, in the optic nerves. I don't know how that all works. But... Um, so, and we see that a couple times um, in, the, in the text where we have uh, Goliath who is being escorted to the battle line by a little guy carrying his shield. Why would, why would giant Goliath need somebody to carry his shield with him? Well, he didn't. He needed somebody with eyes that could see to get him to where he needed to be. He had an escort. And then, and then he says um, uh, the famous line for Goliath, you know, am I a dog that you, yeah, I have to talk kind of low, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Well, what was David carrying? He had a sling and his little pouch of stones and his shepherd's staff. But Goliath saw multiple shepherd's staffs. And then, and then Goliath says, come here, right? Not, you stay there and I'm coming to you. Goliath wasn't coming to him. Goliath was expecting this battle to be up close and personal. He was expecting a, I'm going to stab you with my spear. I'm going to club you with my fist. I don't know, you know, this hand-to-hand -hand combat. And David had a plan and some skills that were very different. So from 20 yards, 30 yards, 50 yards away, David let that stone fly hit Goliath in the head, didn't see it coming, probably, right? Now, we don't know if the stone killed him or if it just knocked him unconscious. It knocked him to the ground. David gets Goliath's sword, cuts off his head. Battle is over. The Israelites rush down the hillside, across the valley, and the Philistines are running and, and uh, in retreat. So, To me, I think, well, okay, so uh, this may sound kind of odd. Do you remember Indiana Jones? Uh, in the first Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's this scene where um, 
Indy is, I mean, he's chasing, trying to find this girl that's been kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. And, and all of a sudden, the crowd parts, and Indy's standing there, and, and this Arab with this big sword comes out, um, and he's... And Indy watches him for a second, and he pulls out his revolver, and he shoots him, and he walks away, right? You know, and, and if you search this on YouTube, you search Indiana Jones, never bring a knife to a gunfight. David was not going to fight Goliath on Goliath's terms. He was going to fight Goliath on David's terms. I don't think David ever was the underdog in this story, and here's the two reasons why. One, he was a skilled slinger. He had talents. He had a battle plan. But two, and probably most importantly, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in 45, 45, 46, and 47, um, this battle was over before it started because God had said it was over before it started. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down. I will remove your head. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David had a plan. David had skills. And David had God on his side. When we think about that and try to, how, do, how does this apply to me? I think sometimes we forget the fact that God has given us skills and abilities. He's given us intellect. He's allowed us to make plans. He's allowed us to think through things. He's provided us with resources to help face the challenges that we come to. And oftentimes I think we enter into a season of life and we're like, I just don't know what to do. I'm helpless in this situation. You're not helpless. There's not a challenge that, that God hasn't equipped you for, or even promised that he's going to equip you for. But, but the bigger win is the fact that you're, not in, you're never in a battle by yourself. God is on your side. He loves redemption stories. He loves healing. He loves forgiveness. You know, when we look at the challenges that we're facing in life, whether relational or, or uh, you know, financial or, you know, whatever, they, whatever health stuff, whatever comes, God has given us some, some, some skills and abilities. He's given us the ability to make a plan to try to sort through the, you know, take account all of the things. My, my Goliath is clumsy and slow. You know, my Goliath can't see very well. I can figure this out, right? And besides, God is on my side. He will give me wisdom. He'll give me resources. He will give me everything that I need. God didn't need David's skills to kill Goliath, right? He used David and his skills to kill Goliath and win that battle against the Philistines, but he didn't need him. I mean, just a couple pages earlier, Jonathan goes out with just his armor bearer, and they 
win a battle because God caused an earthquake and fear amongst the Philistines and they started killing each other. That was just a couple pages ago. You know, we, not very long ago, we had the walls of Jericho coming down and the Red Sea parting and the Egyptians drowning. Water coming out of a rock, manna showing up every day. I mean, God doesn't need us in our fabulous skill set, but he chooses to use us in his working out of his plan. I don't know why sometimes. But I do know that um, King Saul and those like him who are building a kingdom on the earth for themselves um, don't have God's heart. And God is looking for people that have his heart so that he can work out his purposes on the earth. And we get to be a part of that. So not only do I want to to spend my life in such a, live my life out in such a way so that I'm increasingly in, pure, in purity so that I can one day stand before Jesus and be like him and it not be so drastic of a change, but I also want to be used by him for whatever he wants during this life to accomplish his purpose and his goal. When you face challenges, remember you are not the underdog. God has gifted you and he is on your side. Heavenly Father, as we uh, consider this passage and think about a familiar story of David and Goliath, we're reminded that um, the battle is yours, and the challenges, even though they, in our lives, that seem Goliath-sized, you have victory, and you have a plan. And in many cases, you're going to use us and our gifts to work it out that we can see you and evidence of you so that so everyone would know that there is a God in Israel and he fights the battles for us. And that everyone would know in our lives there is a God, there is a Savior living in me that has declared victory over the challenges that I face. Father, work in our hearts and in our minds over the next few minutes as we, as we sing, as we pray, as we contemplate. Um, Yeah, just make yourself even more real. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I just want to call, call your attention to kind of some of these words up on, you know, these Jesus is, these promises, these, these titles that represent who our Savior is. There, there may be some word, word or words up there that are going to jump off that page um, and speak to you even in the next few minutes.